what attracted me to relationship marketing uh, at the beginning was very much about how people interact with each other to make the world a better place. It was about people getting along with other people, being inspiration for other people. Being Indigenous at that point in time in central Queensland was not easy. People would just outright say things to your face and not and hurt your feelings and not care. So you sort of had to have this bit of armoury around you. And that resilience, I think, is definitely what helped with the PHD. I look back now and I can't believe how bold I was. But at the time, in many ways, that's the way the river took me. you're in the right place when you also know it is the first time that someone like you has ever been there. Uncharted territory can be overwhelming but going to new places and sometimes being the first to do it is the point of a research degree and when the research you're doing ensures more people can walk confidently into that uncharted territory then you're definitely in the right place. I'm Mary Bolling, and this is Impact, CQ University's research podcast. And this series, we're starting at the start with the CQ University research higher degrees that ask the first key questions, start life-changing careers, and make a big impact. Today, we're hearing from CQ University's first Indigenous PhD graduate, how her passion for social marketing and social impact put her into the halls of power, and then how she transformed opportunities for future generations. This episode of Impact is recorded and produced on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Seek University pays respects to elders past and present and recognises Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander traditions of research and storytelling. My name's Maria Rossini. I'm a professor of marketing here at the University of the Sunshine Coast. Um, and I'm here on Gubby Gubby country. So I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which I have the joy of living, working and playing. I've been here on Gubby Gubby country for 20 years now. So um, straight uh, after I finished my, my PhD at uh, CQU in Rockhampton, um, came down here. So I spent about nine years at Durumble country. And before that, I actually was born and bred in Mackay. Um, so here at USC, I'm a professor of marketing, which was an unusual direction to take at the time for an Indigenous person back in the late 90s. Um, and I'm also the co-director and founder of the Indigenous and Transcultural Research Centre here. Oh, all amazing to know and sounds like a lot of really interesting work, Maria. So let's go back to your time at CQU on Durumble Country because you started with your Bachelor of Business and graduated with that in 1997. And then the next year you were straight back to begin your PhD. So take us back to that point in your life and what attracted you to that career in research? Yeah, well, it's a really interesting time. When I did my undergrad, my Bachelor of Business, I actually had graduated uh, in the middle of a recession, the recession we had to have. And that sort of, and being in marketing, marketing is one of the first things that businesses get rid of in a recession. <laughs> so it was sort of opportunities dried up. Um, that said, when I started my undergrad at um, a CQ Uni, um, I was one of a cohort of 104 and only four of us 
graduated and finished our degrees. And I say that because later on when I talk about my research, which is about improving pathways and success of Indigenous students in university, it will make sense. So it's sort of been this lifelong thread. Um, I went back to uni because I, frankly, I have a love of learning. I uh, just couldn't get enough of it. And I had come back in uh, earlier, about 96, uh, and had worked for 12 months in Kaitech, as it was known then, or Nolayumba, uh, in the Indigenous unit. And I had worked there and I happened to have an office that was I swear, 10 metres away from the business faculty. And I used to see these academics going up and down the stairs and coming in and out, and they were the same people that taught me um, as well, who I knew because, you know, that's the relational great part of CQ Uni and Rocky. Um, and I just started dreaming. I wonder I wonder what it would be like to do that. They seem to have really do fulfilling work and have fulfilling jobs. And I thought, why not give it a go? So a bit of a risk taker in that. Um, talked to um, my third year lecturers at the time, um, got some advice on honours uh, and then just gave it a crack basically um, and that's <laughs> pretty much it. Look, I look back now and I can't believe how many risks I took. I look back now and I can't believe how bold I was but at the time I was just rolling with it and to me in many ways that's the way the river took me. I was just happened to be in that office. I just happened to look out my window. I just happened to see those people. Um, and just crossing paths with different people because sometimes I think that happenstance of fate sort of delivering you sort of people and ideas sort of drove you. At the end of my um, honours degree uh, in 2007, uh, I had applied for a number of scholarships. Scholarships then were just as competitive as what they are now and in fact they were probably more highly contested and uh, I applied I was um, successful with three of them and I just picked the best one to be honest. And off I went. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you could absolutely see the potential career path just outside the window. But what about the topic that you took on and I guess the questions that you wanted answered in this this field of marketing that you had the passion for? Look, I think in retrospect, when I because I'm a principal fellow of the Higher Education Academy UK, so there, there's only a thousand of us in the world. And I look back, I had to write as a part of that application a retrospective story of how I came to be where I was. And that matters because that's when I realised how that topic selection um, at the time consciously and un more unconsciously has actually shaped my whole career. At the, that point in time, I had a great supervisor who, who was just a really great guy, Tony, um, and he just said, look, there's this hot topic that's coming up. I knew I wanted to be in marketing because I'm a diehard marketer. All my degrees are in marketing. Absolutely love it. Passion point, you know, that's it. Like I would never see myself in any other discipline. Um, and he said, look, there's this really hot new area coming up. It's called relationship marketing. He said, why don't you take a look at that? Uh, when I was writing up my application for the principal fellow, it was at that point that I looked back and I thought, what did I really like about it? And what I liked about it was its relationality. It was about people. It was about people getting along with other people and interacting with other people and being inspiration for other people. What attracted me to relationship marketing uh, at the beginning was very much about how people interact with each other to make the world a better place. Okay, I could see why that would connect um, from everything you've said about yourself. So in what direction did you take that that emerging concept and what did you discover about how marketing, I guess, can 
influence and, and achieve social good through that. Yeah. So in my um, both my honours and my PhD, the context that I looked at was higher education and it was about access to higher education. So we looked at how these relationships between academics, between universities and how um, the community and students saw them influence success for Indigenous people. Um, so when i looking at it, looking back, now look, I got a lot of flack for focusing on higher education services as the context for the research because back then the big focus was on commercial profit-making organisations there was very much a view that higher education studies were for higher education people. And, you know, I'm so glad I stuck with it because it's actually all my grants and my whole career has been built around this area of, of access and equity in higher ed. Um, so it was such a, a great topic area because at the time it was an area that just fascinates me. I was interested in the politics, how Australian higher education got to be what it is and the sort of succession of policy that led to um, the opportunities that were around for people, but also the constraints that were there, and particularly for regional universities. Having always lived in a regional place here on the Sunshine Coast in a regional place, it was my lived experience. So that was actually empowering because I had lived experience to draw from and people around me that infused the research, which made it realistic and more impactful. I wonder if you could reflect on that then, Maria, back to even before you were in a higher education, like was it your own journey and the access and the equity that you experienced kind of feeding into that? Like how did you go from growing up in Mackay to studying at CQU in Rockhampton, for instance? Yeah, so it was a combination of both. It was my own experience but also observations and I think that's a big part of Indigenous ways of knowing is is watching and listening to people and just seeing and I think as you get older too you see where people's life trajectories take them but for me it was probably came down to I always knew I wanted to go to university my brother had started the year before me and I uh, had a great experience um, so in some ways I was going into a safe space because I already had family there but ultimately it was the in terms of that in most influential part was ab study. Without ab study, I would never, or my brother, would never have gone to university. And that's why I'm interested in the policy aspects that, and that sit around this, because frankly, that is what got me in. And then once I was in, I could fly in that space. Um, and I think that, um, uh, that and the Indigenous, uh, unit or Indigenous Services Unit at the time, um, had some great outreach, uh, officers, had some great people that were, talked a lot with my parents and things and lots of assurance as well because I was only 17 at the time when I started. So I think my parents wanted a bit of assurance. Obviously, my brother was there, but um, they wanted that bit of assurance that an adult was looking out <laughs> for me <laughs> in that sense. Um, so, yeah, and it just worked well. But that said, you know, when you grow up in central Queensland, places like that, you're fiercely independent. That's that's just the way. You have to be able to look after yourself. And I still notice it now when I go back there. It is a big part of it. There's a high level of self-efficacy. People think, well, if, if I can't do it, I'll give it a crack and I'll find out. And I think that resilience and that strength and that willingness to take risks is very much a part of living in those places. Do you think those qualities are something that are very necessary to then do research as well? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very, very, very much 
So um, the resilience factor in particular and sticking with it through the tough times. Um, and look, being Indigenous at that point in time in central Queensland was not easy. Um, it was nothing uh, like it is today and you met a lot of barriers uh, and it was hard. People would just outright say things to your face and, not, and hurt your feelings and not care. So it was a whole different environment. So you sort of had to have this bit of armoury around you and that resilience I think is definitely what helped with the PhD. That said, the PhD to me was never a grind. Um, I started out with a broad topic area. I made it my own. I put it in a higher education context because I was purely and utterly fascinated by it. So I never lost the fascination. Um, and I think that that was a really important part of it. Like I supervise students now. Um, and the main thing is to find a topic that you hope they won't get bored with. Uh, in time. So I spend a lot of time talking, um, breaking bread, so to speak, with my students to get to know them. Because if we can find a topic that sort of is already enmeshed a bit in their life and that they're fascinated with, I know that they'll stick with it um, and maintain that fascination with the area. Okay. It sounds like that passion is still there for, for that topic you had way back then as well. Can you take us into, you said it started with the idea of that emerging relationship marketing and then I think social marketing became the term but can you explain how it actually plays in changing human behavior because it sounds like that's centered into overdrive yeah um and it's funny because like disciplines and areas evolve over time and because I've been in the game for a while it's been interesting to watch it happen Look, relationship marketing at the time was new because a lot of marketing was commercial and it was focused just on bringing in new customers, earning an immediate profit from a single transaction and moving on. Relationship marketing, however, was about keeping people around, building bonds, getting to know your customers, knowing people's names. So it was, it was actually this human-centered element. Where it connected with social marketing was that social marketing in sort of the mid-2000s became a very interesting area. Again, social marketing is driven by government policy uh, as well. So it is the work of government. The difference is, is that social marketing is about encouraging people to take positive steps that improve their well-being and quality of life. It's also about voluntary change, which is what I really liked. Um, the sense of giving people or helping people see a behavior or a situation through a certain light um, helps them then to make the decisions and changes that they need to make. At the end of the day, when we voluntarily do something, we're more likely to stick with it. We have got buy-in, we've got skin in the game, so to speak. Um, we are our research. So um, our research is is often about not only our lived experiences, but we have to walk in the shoes and the heart and sort of take on the hearts and minds of the people we're working with to say, how are they feeling? How do they live their everyday life? How do they see their world? And it means that you have to suspend all judgment. You just literally meet people where they're at and you take them how they are. And that's very much a Queensland, regional Queensland thing. Look, that's what it was like in Rocky. When you met people, you take them on face value. And in social marketing, we do the same thing. We just meet people where they're at. We suspend all judgment. We talk them through and say, hey, you know, and we, we work or co-design um solutions that will work for them that they want to do and that they want to be a part of so in many ways it was still that very human-centered and very relational um, and obviously relationality is a key indigenous way of knowing and being uh, with it so that's where it came through 
I can imagine listeners uh, listening to that description, Maria, who may have never heard of social marketing and go, hey, I've been social marketed too, I'm realising now, (laughs) because it is is everywhere and hopefully making us all better people. Like you said, you know, it was so linked to government policy. Could you think about some of the research you've done in that space and uh, explain how it's influenced government policy or how it should be influencing government policy. policy. Yeah. And look, I think even within social marketing, we do have moments of, of deep reflection of, are we doing the right thing and whose agenda is this? So you'll find with social marketers that they're sort of this mediator between, okay, this is an area that there's funding around, um, but that's not necessarily meaning that we're just an arm of government, so to speak. Um, and I say that because I wrote an article uh, last year or the year before called Social Marketing Hackers, uh, and it was entirely designed as a provocation to question, uh, why are we doing what we're doing? Is this virtue signaling? Are we actually doing this for the right reasons? You know, and so I actually put it out with some really quite strong questions now that I go back and read it. Uh-huh. I was feeling a bit bold <laughs> at the time. Um, and I was surprised to actually get some personal emails from some senior people who uh, I hadn't contacted, been in contact for a very long time with who were saying, this is refreshing. You know, you've asked the hard questions that, that people are saying about it. But social marketers are reflective and do understand power relationships. Um, uh, in that sort of area and what it means. And with regards to my own research and my main area of research for pretty much the last 10 years has been about um, equity in higher education. So I'm a um, adjunct fellow with the National Centre for Student Equity in higher ed. I was very lucky in 2019, I was a national research fellow for them and did a large study on... Um, future work and how it impacts the university decisions of people from low SES backgrounds. As a result of that, at the towards the end of that process of doing my fellowship, an opportunity came up to be on the NAPSIGN review and I was the only academic on the NAPSIGN review. Um, the NAPSIGN review is also known as that- National Regional Rural and Remote Tertiary yeah. Education Strategy. Um, and it is uh, the basis of current policy in this country. One of the biggest things, uh, it was an amazing thing. I actually got to be in that room, part of those teams on that task force, doing the background work, writing, constructing, pulling all the materials together, getting the literature in, um, and basically having um, a bit of influence over the policy that came out of it. One of the areas that I was really proud to be, I guess, that I could hang my hat on that I was very proud about was being able to to move through or shepherd through one of the policy changes, which was that all Indigenous students in this country sit above the cap that universities have. Right. And that, yeah, trust me, I sleep well at night now because uh, of that. Wow. And I still remember when um, the minister at the time approved all of the recommendations, just having that moment, uh, sitting at my desk, looking out the window again uh, and going, wow, like that's that's the legacy right there. Um, so that's something that I felt so good because obviously it's going to change the trajectory of life of hopefully hundreds of thousands of Indigenous students um, since 2020 going forward, who will now, if, if they're willing and, and able to go to university, have the opportunity to, because they won't 
they will sit above the caps that the unis have. That's incredible work and incredible, as you say, to to be in the room and making that happen, Maria. Do you did you have that goal in mind when you started and knowing that research and, and your research and expertise opened that door, do you think researchers are aware enough of this and how do you make that jump into changing lives? Um, look, I think social marketers are interested in policy change and a lot of social marketers will give feedback to reviews for government and things like that. But to actually be in the room at the national level creating federal policy um, is, is yeah, I think there's a couple of us that have done it, um, but it was certainly an amazing opportunity. I had no idea what lay before me. I just jumped in and said, yep, let's have a crack. And that's pretty much what it came down to. I have no idea. Like I, and, and I just rolled with it. Um, I worked with the most amazing team of people beyond inspired I was. Um, and to be able then after uh, that was released to come back to my substantive position and share that with my colleagues uh, here, but also in the social marketing field was key because it showed that instead of responding or reacting to policy, that it was possible to to shape it um, in that space. So, and obviously for me, it was the culmination of all of, you know, a couple of decades of study and uh, working as an academic in this space too. But uh, honestly, I didn't know what I was getting into. I thought, that sounds awesome. Sign me up. And and they were like, we'd love to have you on board. And it was it was a fantastic experience. I love that you bring it back to having a crack. <laughs> That's so, uh, so regional Queensland of you. Look, and now you're, I guess, passing on that that practice and that experience as well, because as you said, you're a professor in marketing at the University of Sunshine Coast, but you're also working with research students at the start of their research journeys. So is there advice or insight that you kind of gained while you were at CQU starting out yourself that you're still passing on today? I think trust the process. Um, Sometimes at the beginning, you want it all laid out in, you know, this is this is the next step. This is step ten. This is step eleven, and a part of it is trust the process and pick a, a good supervisor that you get along with. Um, I spend a lot of time with students, getting to know them before we sign anything or before I commit to anything. To me, it's more than just their, you know academic skills or ability to write. I mean, that's a big part of it too. Don't get me wrong. I do give little tasks for people to do before I sign them up because I want to see um, how their initiative that they can show. Uh, But a lot of the time it is that because, you know, a supervisory relationship is a long-term relationship and it's not just getting through the process. You know, most PhDs are not three years. Most PhDs are four or five or even six years. Um, I had one that went for nine years. And so it's a long-term relationship. So these people you're forging effectively become your academic family. So you want to like them. <laughs> you want, want to have something in common. This is uh-huh. that relationality <laughs> um, all over again. And look, this, it's, that's the way I do it. I'm, I'm very aware, obviously, with recent um, grants that I've got that different people supervise in different ways. I only speak for, for myself. Um, that's what worked for me. That's what got me through was my relationship with my supervisor and I do the same thing here. Uh, I break bread, so to speak, a lot with students and get to know them as people. 
Um, I'm also aware as a supervisor that often students will start out and, and I'll, I'll ask them the same one question, you know, what's your intended outcome studying a PhD? Mm-hmm. Most of them will say that they want to become an academic. And I go, smile. <laughs> and I go, right, in 18 months, I'll ask you that same question and we'll see. Uh-huh. Because academia is shrouded in mystery, you know, smoke and mirrors, and uh, it's not what it seems. It is a workplace. And it is a, it is an occupation, uh, and I think uh, sometimes we new students romanticise the work, um, but the nature of our work is very much hidden because it's individual. You know, we're in our own little offices, and our work is invisible to a large extent. You can't see people's inspiration, or thinking, or processing, and all those sorts of things uh, that we we see and do. That um, it's not tangible in that sense. But as you know, the sector at the moment, it's contracting. So as people come in now, you need to consider plan B and plan C. Um, and I encourage and I will give examples of um, past students of mine, for example, that now work in the government or who are self-employed um, or who work for um, other organisations out there and point out that a PhD is valued outside of academia as well. Maria, you were the first Indigenous student at CQU to achieve uh, a PhD and and cross the stage with your fluffy hat. Uh, Tell us how it felt and that, you know, opportunity, but also responsibility that you felt at the time. Yeah, look, it was relief. It was excitement. I was was so chuffed. Um, to be honest, I didn't feel a sense of responsibility. Um, I was just absolutely over the moon. I got through it um, and it was really exciting because um, I submitted my PhD in early September. Uh, two weeks later, uh, my husband and I flew to Hawaii and got married. We had, well, we were engaged at that point. And then we started Hooray, building Congratulations. House. So to me, it was just this rolling, you know, life milestones because we hadn't done those things because I had to finish the, wanted to finish the thesis, obviously. Um, so turning up there in, it was April, I think, was um, uh, when my graduation was. I was just beyond, I was so proud. You know, education was something that, um, my grandparents didn't have the access to or opportunity to because of living uh, under the Act in Queensland. And so to me, this was a big gain for everybody. But just that I did it, like I was just like, yeah, okay. And it was just that sense of the whole future and, you know, doors opening and the future sort of laying itself out for me. Um, I didn't feel a sense of responsibility. The university certainly didn't put any responsibility um, on me at the time and probably at the time um, uh, perhaps didn't realise how important it was as to be the first Indigenous um, graduate. Uh, the second Indigenous graduate is Professor Bronwyn Fredericks, uh, Professor, uh, sorry, Pro-Vice-Chancellor and Professor at uh, UQ. So Bronwyn and I sort of were you know, right, going through that process at the same time as well. But to be honest, I was just so thrilled. I was, I was beside myself, and it was just it marked a whole new sort of phase of life for me. Well, it's it's belated, but congratulations again, and it's it's amazing to see how excited you still are by that, Maria. And now you get to pass on that excitement very specifically as well, I guess, because you're. Um, part of a project investigating how to integrate Indigenous knowledge into doctoral education. So um, tell us about the potential you see for that project. Yeah. 
And that's a really exciting project because it's about acknowledging different ways of knowing and being um, and different ways that in Indigenous Australians um, operate and exist in the world and in, and in, within universities being um, very much seen as these colonial settings. And the best part about it is bringing in things like the power of story and how we can use that to, in many ways, get to know our research students. This project has stretched me in a part because it uses arts-based methodologies. And so, I've, you know, I'm a very open-minded person and I have absolutely embraced these arts-based oh, methodologies. Amazing. Taken it to the next level. Absolutely adore them. Um, and I think because in marketing, it has that creative side. So we create these time maps. Um, and of course, instead of just drawing one, I had to, you know, do it in Canva and make it all fancy. <laughs> It's just, but it's like the colours and the, the, you know, just that's just me. I love all that ah. sort of stuff. Um, but the whole idea of this project is about improving success of Indigenous and transcultural students in doctoral education. Transcultural is defined as students, international students, um, in terms of people of colour and people who are from culturally linguistically diverse backgrounds. A part of this is understanding that in Australia, the research process. Um, uh, in some discipline areas, you know, it's, it's straight down to business and there's not that time taken to get to know the student's background. Um, the methodology for this was developed by my colleague, Catherine Manathunga. This is a part of her work that she's been working on for about six or seven years uh, with a team, um, in, including uh, Jing Chi and Michael Singh. So they've been working in this space for a while. A part of this project is finding a way that we can help supervisors and Indigenous and transcultural students connect, but also to help those students to see how their life history shapes their research. Um, and as I've just explained, like that was my whole one, because as I guess mature researchers, when we look back, we can see how our life history shaped the topics that interested us and the areas that we followed. And this is what we're trying to achieve through this. So the power of story is one. And by the power of story, it's about um, a process of having students and supervisors um, create life histories about um, uh, not only where they grew up, where they studied, the nature of the history of the discipline that they're in, the history of the place where they're collecting their data or doing the supervision, um, you know, what other degrees they did, what led them to that point in time and what and how that shapes their research. And it's a really fascinating and rich methodology because uh, when you're collecting data, you can see at some point in there, the eyes, people light up when they realise that something from their childhood, some critical defining moment has somehow made its way subconsciously into their research and helps to shape what they're doing now. Um, so like I said, for me, it was that availability of ad study, those policy changes, which allowed me to go to uni in the first place. And that access then allowed me to, to move on from there. So it's a great part of it. The other part of it is about learning on country or learning from country. Um, and a part of that is, is recognising the Aboriginal country uh, on, on where you are. Uh, and that sort of interaction with that space and understanding that the environment, if you like, around you and where you conduct the research influences the research. It influences our well-being, of course, as well. 
Um, so what this does is it fast tracks those conversations so that you get to know who you're working with. And then that way you can craft, particularly for the supervisor, can help the student to craft topics that actually is anchored in their strengths, that's anchored in their life experiences, and that's what keeps us going through it. Maria, that that project sounds amazing, both for giving research students more ways to connect, I guess, to their research, but also maybe it's an opportunity for um, researchers to connect their research to a wider audience as well, which is so important. Um, I wonder what advice you give to people who want to follow in your footsteps and especially Indigenous students who wanting to use that research to achieve social impact. Yeah, Um, and I agree. I think the method methodology that we're using has many areas that it can expand into to help build build impact. I think for researchers coming in, I I always wanted to do research that made a difference. I think it's just being courageous and and giving it a go because you just never know. It's like that movie Sliding Sliding Doors. You just never know where it might lead you. Uh, and with research topics too going forward, when it has um, some resonance with you and when you can actually see yourself in your research topic, so to speak, that is what keeps you motivated and going through it. I always see my role here um, is to keep the door open and light the path for Indigenous students. So telling my story and being frank and honest about how I came to it and what I'm doing is really important because, like I said, academia has lots of smoke and mirrors and you can't ever tell what's sort of around the corner. So I did trust in the process. I gave it a crack. I was courageous and I stuck with it through to the end. A lot of, I guess, professional development courses for students often talk about encouraging students to sort of engineer their pathway forward or build a design for what they're going to do when they finish. The fact is, is that it's often happenstance. It's it's often fate. Um, and I often say to my students, it's, you know, my undergrad students as well, it's like, we're just, just go wherever the river takes you, that's where you're meant to be. I think you can engineer and think through what the possibilities are for sure, but in some ways be open to where the river takes you. Um, sometimes things just pop up and you just need to grab it and just have a crack. <laughs> Professor Maria Rossidi there with some inspiring insight about those unexpected opportunities ahead when you follow the research river. She's a professor of marketing in the School of Business at University of the Sunshine Coast, a principal fellow of the Academy of Higher Education in the UK and a director of the Indigenous and Transcultural Research Centre here in Australia. You can find Professor Rossidi on Twitter too. Her handle is DR Maria Rossidi, and that's spelled R A C I T I. If you're like Professor Rossidi and want a career that has an impact, or even just want to see where the river goes, a research higher degree is a good place to start. Visit cqu.edu.au slash rhd to explore degree options, pathways, potential supervisors, or just to register for a free information webinar. There's more information in the show notes, and that includes a link to current scholarships for RHD students too. On Impact Research Podcast next week. Sleep's got its fingers in everything in our lives. It makes perfect sense to connect sleep and sports or sleep and performance or sleep and recovery. Actually, the problem was that 
the men were falling asleep and the women weren't. And I thought the orgasm might be a bit of a, a key here. And, and one of the, the, the first study that we did looking at that was actually, yeah, when there was an orgasm involved, it was an equalizer associated with sleep as well. That episode with Dr. Michele Lastella out soon. Make sure you're following CQ University podcasts wherever you listen to get every episode as it's released. And check out CQ University across social media for more inspiring stories and life-changing research. Thanks for joining us on Impact Research Podcast from CQ University, where research makes real impact.